Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. I'm actually on the road this week in the palatial, almost uh, eighth wonder of the world headquarters of the Illinois. Is it just Illinois Policy or Illinois Policy Center? Illinois Policy Institute is our C3. Illinois Policy is our C4. Most of the world knows us by Illinois Policy Institute. Okay, so... There's just a, there are a lot of ISIs out there. So um, yes, as long as there's no ISIS is out there. There's still the some of them. They've, they've scattered. But uh, anyway, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm in uh, the Windy City, uh, also known as Mudtown, Chai Town, City in a Garden, the City of the Big Shoulders, the Windy City, the Second City, Murder City. Sorry, guys. The White City. Sorry about that. And the real Gotham. And that's a debate that we can take on for another podcast. Because there are people who believe that Philly is the real Gotham. But thats I don't think that's true. It's definitely not New York. <laughs> anyway, I'm here with John Tillman, the head of the Illinois Policy Institute. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you, Jonah. Sure. Um, so I'm going to sort of cut to the chase. What the hell is wrong with Illinois? <laughs> uh, we have a long history of politics being uh, a free enterprise uh, effort here, but unfortunately, it's crony capitalism at its worst. Uh-huh. Uh, people ask me this all the time. How did this turn out this way? Most states, government is sort of a sideshow. All the talented people go into one sort of business or another. In Illinois, politics is one of our industries. We have people that trade in the financial markets. We have pharmaceutical companies, manufacturing companies, large agricultural business, food processing, and politics. Uh And so politics is just a normal course of career choices here for people. And the way politics works in Illinois is it's very much like the mob. Or a feudal system. You have uh, dons and captains and you live in a certain district and you have to come and get your business approved by your local alderman if you're in the city of Chicago, for example, before you can go forward. And this is literally true. I've experienced it myself. So uh, government is in front of everything. So it's funny. I grew up in New York City in 1970s, you know, the golden years. Yes, it was a sweet time to be in New York. I bet you spent a lot of time on Times Square. I I did, I did. As a young boy, because there's nothing nothing more thrilling than running away from a tranny hooker with a switchblade. But um, how uh, many times were you caught? (laughs) That that's another subject for another podcast. But uh, the it's funny, you know, whatever people think about Rudy Giuliani now. One of the arguments I've always made about why he was such a great mayor back then is that Friedrich Hayek talks about how competition is part of a process of discovery of what a, what the true price of something is. Right. And if you don't have competition, um, there's no incentive to discover the true price because you actually just charge whatever the, whatever you can get away with. And one of the things that I sort of learned watching Giuliani fix New York was that just the simple value of being outside of the existing sort of one-party state apparatus made it possible for him to do things that would have been impossible in basically a machine politics situation because someone would get tipped off, someone would get notified, someone would get bribed, and or people would just move, would hide the paperwork necessary. So when Giuliani got the mob out of the Fulton Fish Market, they've been trying to do that for like 120 years. <laughs> and he just did it one weekend because no one got the call to get tipped off to not be there. And it seems to me that Illinois, more so than any other obvious state, I mean, I don't know about Louisiana, but Illinois has the worst 
sort of institutionalization of one party politics, even if there are nominally Republicans who are part of the system, but they're kind of like the Washington generals, the team that's supposed to lose to the Globetrotters in a certain way, right? It, it actually is a little, it's a little different than that. Uh, prior to 2002, prior to 2002, Republicans uh, held every statewide office and won most of the time statewide, held governorships for nearly 30 years. But, but, uh, but Cook County and Chicago are basically the Rome of this uh, empire. Uh, yes right? and no. I would actually say that you have Rome and Constantinople because okay. the, the division was that on the statewide stuff, the Republicans controlled it. Uh-huh. So the RTA, the Rapid Transit uh, the, uh, Authority that ran all, all the uh, the CTA, the Chicago Transit Authority and the Metro Trains, that was run by the Republicans. Uh, all the things to do with uh, the toll roads run by Republicans. Prisons run, run by Republicans. So the Republicans ran things that were statewide. That was where they got their patronage jobs. And Cook County, as you rightly say, was the Democrats. And they had an agreement. It was like two mob families. Uh-huh. Here's where we're going to have New Jersey, you're going to have New York, and we're going to get along just fine. And then the corruption of George Ryan, uh, who was elected in 1998 and then went to prison after he, he was out in 2002. Ruined As the, governors do here. Well, it's a pattern. <laughs> There's a pattern. And we're hoping that the current – no, I shouldn't say that. Uh, we're not hoping for anything like that. But the, um, uh, but the, the, pat, the pattern is that with, uh, with governors and George Ryan after he was out in 2003 uh, and Democrats took over the governorship, ruined the Republican brand in the state of Illinois, and rightly so. He was a corrupt uh, governor. And then on the heels of the entire Bush administration, war, war fatigue and the rest of it that happened in the early 2000s, right. really brought – the Republican Party to a nader, and they've not yet found a recovery. That despite the fact that Bruce Rauner won and was a one-term, one-termer from 2015 through 2019. So, since you brought up Rauner, you got the Illinois Policy Institute and and <laughs> Governor Rauner used to let it, used to get along quite well. Can you why don't you just why don't you explain what happened there, and I'll just ask some follow-ups about that. Uh, so I, I knew the governor long before he was governor, and uh, and, and we got along fine. And uh, I, I was happy to see him win. Even of course, the Illinois Policy Institute is nonpartisan, but part of the reason sure. we were friendly is because he was a pro-free market, pro-limited government, uh, um, economic conservative, and we had a policy alignment. I always try to explain this to some of our friends in the media who don't understand that sometimes you're friends with people because you actually share ideas right. and it actually doesn't have anything to do with what party you're in. Right. We do a lot of things, for example, with Democrats that people get confused about. But uh, anyway, so when he won, we had high hopes that we would see his agenda advance. And frankly, he struggled in the role of governor and it has been well reported. He had many challenges. Uh, we tried to, I worked with him privately for about six months in 2016 to try to help him out with a variety of things. That did not go all that well. And in 2017, he had great struggles. Eventually, was overridden in 2017 on a tax hike vote. Fifteen Republicans abandoned ship and voted with Democrats to override him and uh, passed a very large tax hike um, that you know was going to solve all of our problems, but hasn't, of course, because right. tax hikes never solve our problems. And so, uh, in 2017, uh, the governor and I had a conversation, and from that conversation, he hired six of our senior people who went over to his administration. And to say that it went badly would be an understatement. Uh, people did very uh, hard work, uh, very committed, and several of them uh, ended up uh, – Doing pretty well for a period of time, but in the end, the experiment did not work, mm-hmm. and uh, and they were all jettisoned eventually in one form or another, except for one individual who survived it. And the reason was because um, uh, these were all amazingly talented people long before they got there and amazingly talented people since they left. But that environment was a very, very negative environment. And the governor's, you know, leadership and management skills, he was under a tremendous amount of pressure, and it just, it just didn't work out. And so then he uh, passed a, or signed a bill. Uh, the taxpayer funding of abortion. 
And of course, we don't get into that issue sure. here, but uh, it's a very uh, lightning rod issue around the state. And he had given his word to the cardinal, uh, 22 Republicans that came to visit to me privately, that uh, he was going to veto the bill on fiscal uh, for fiscal reasons because we can't afford it. Right. And secondly, of course, there's the whole issue with that. And so I, I posted – Yeah, something. you don't have to be a pro-lifer to be opposed to right. the state paying for people's uh, abortions. Precisely. And so I make no comment on that issue. But uh, I did post something on Facebook that I probably shouldn't have, which – Referred to him as Benedict Rauner, and that ended up on the front page of the Sun Times. It became quite a controversy. I can imagine. Yeah. So, but I, which, uh, by the way, I should say, uh, I regret doing that. I shouldn't. Have, I shouldn't have done that. It was inappropriate for me to do that. Yes. Yeah, I have never posted anything on social media that I've ever regretted. And um, that's because you're a better man than I am. Yeah, um, or I'm you also, care less, or I'm just lying. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I will say I haven't posted anything on social media that I've regretted today. That yes, me too, um, because I haven't posted anything today. Um, I posted some pictures of my dogs. So, if memory serves, the problem with Rauner was in part. I mean, you sort of you, you made reference to it um, in one way, but part of the problem was. He made what was it, forty-four signature campaign promises, or something uh, like that? Was that was I the platform? It, uh, well, let's see. Romney had fifty-three. I think. I think uh, Governor Rauner he had in the high forties. Yeah, but he didn't want to surpass that presidential. Ambition. But it, it was some locked-in number, yes. right? And and rather than do what politicians are supposed to do, which is triage, where they you try to. I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not a close student of Chicago or Illinois politics. Um, it, you know, from my perspective, it just what I like about Illinois politics is that it is it's sort of why people are attracted to Game of Thrones. It pings something in you about this is sort of before modern theory of what politics is supposed to be. This is what politics is supposed to is natural would nat- naturally occurring politics of just graft and payoffs and tribes and coalitions and all of yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. But Rather than prioritize one issue at a time, he tried to do 44 or whatever the number was issues essentially simultaneously, which is technically impossible because you can't get people to say yes to some of them if they're vested in for their reelection chances and saying no to other ones. It has to be you have to do them. You have to funnel them into a channel where you deal one issue at a time when you're trying to do significant reforms. Is that basically right? Or? That's exactly right. I think one of the things that I think one of the things that the governor had a hard time with is that his business life was a binary world. Mm-hmm. It was zero one zero one. Uh, we're across the table, we're adversaries, we negotiate, we make a deal. Each of us is a little unhappy, each of us is a little happy. It's a typical kind of binary transaction in the private equity world. Politics is a matrix world. It's ever-changing alliances, issue to issue to issue. And so when you throw all 44 issues on the table, what you do is just create spaghetti. Right. You, you have no coherence on how you're going to form alliances for a given issue because you always have cross-conflicts across members of the two caucuses, the two parties, urban versus rural versus suburban. And so you can never get to the 60 votes you need in the House uh, or the 30 votes you need in the Senate to pass a bill. And he never seemed to understand that, that it was about focusing on two to three things and only doing those two to three things right. until you knock one out, you add in another one. You knock right. one out, you add in another one. You could never do that. And um, I, you know, I, I will say I, I, I respect the governor put his hat in. He spent a lot of his own money to run. Uh, he tried really, really hard. And uh, apparently now he is relaxing in Italy and drinking a lot of Italian wine. And I think he's earned it. That's, that's yeah. a good place to be. If you have that option, you should absolutely. And you know, it, uh, one thing, having been up close and personal to it, you know, on a very modest basis, uh, but being around elected officials, whatever you think of elected. 
officials, they work hard. And I uh-huh. mean that sincerely. It is a hard job in terms of energy, commitment, 24-7, seven, uh, you know, every, every day of the week. And uh, uh, unfortunately, most of them make mistakes because they're so exhausted, apparently. Right. <laughs> um, so, and then the other thing that I think people outside of Illinois probably don't know is that the actual power center in the state is this guy, the Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House? Yeah, Speaker yeah. of the House. Madigan, right? Uh, yeah, Michael uh, Madigan, the longest-serving uh, caucus leader of any body in the history of the country in terms of legis- state legislative or federal legislative bodies. And he's very proud of that, by the way. Uh-huh. He also keeps a little post or a little postcard, and he has the list of all the governors he has outlasted since he's been Speaker. He's been Speaker uh, every year since 1983, with the exception of 95 and 96 after the uh, 94 Republican wave, but he got it right back mm-hmm. after two years. And uh, he's been in the General Assembly since 1970. Now, is, And he's only 25 years old. We can't figure <laughs> it out. Actually, he just looks 25. He's got a portrait in his attic that is yes, you know, exactly. like Dorian Gray. But um, <laughs> the uh, how to put this diplomatically – one, looking at the totality, totality of his lifespan as a public servant, one would not say it was defined by a profound ideological rigor or um, uh, narrowness, right? I mean, he sort of started out as your classic sort of a Catholic, pro-life-ish, culturally conservative Democrat type, and now he's... Fairly anti-tax in the beginning, actually. Yeah. Uh, at least he played that card publicly pretty well for a long time. So what are what are the things that actually I mean aside from the desire to re, to continue to outlive governors while in office what are the things that actually motivate him This is a great question and he was asked this question by somebody I know well uh, over a dinner and uh they asked that exact question and the speaker according to this individual who I trust completely to be telling the truth uh I don't understand what do you what do you mean <laughs> why do I do this well, you know, who are you trying to help? Who's Who are the people you care about? What's your issue? Who are the audiences? Who are the constituents that you think need help and you want to help yeah. them? I, I, I've never thought of that before. I mean, I, I just don't. This was his answer. I don't, I've never thought of that before. <laughs> this is a very unusual politician in that quiet moment gives that answer. Uh, and the individual said, well, I mean, what, what motivates you? Why are you in this? And the answer was, uh, I love the power game of politics. Uh-huh. And I like making money from the power game of politics. And not only so points I've, for I've, honesty. I've I've heard that secondhand, obviously, as, uh-huh. I've, I've, as I've properly disclosed. But boy, does it ring true. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you have to respect it. He's been uh, pretty amazing. Now, under his now, how's he making money from the the? the oh, Jonah. Jonah. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, how's he making money legally? Jonah, this. Jonah. This, uh, I, I'm so glad you've asked me. That. <laughs> We're going to have fun with this one. So going back to the whole point about a, a market system which creates price transparency, we have a property tax system that is purposely designed to be opaque. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for the average taxpayer to understand how their property taxes are arranged. This is unlike any other property tax system in the country. And so when you get your property tax bill, it's a bit of a mystery. And there's this industry called property tax appeals attorneys. And so you retain a property tax appeals attorney, and they go to the uh, um, the star chamber to, for the decision makers in the Cook County government, and they uh, put forward an appeal on your property tax bill. And it's either sanctioned or not, and you get your property taxes lowered. And that property tax attorney gets a piece of the action for the money they save you in the first year, and this is how they make money. Uh, Michael J. Madigan is the senior partner in Madigan and Getzendanner, and they are the largest, one of the largest property tax appeals firms uh, in Cook 
Cook County, and they primarily do buildings like uh, Willis Tower, formerly known as the Sears Tower, and all these very expensive uh, uh, high-rises here in the Loop that will have tax bills in the tens and many tens of yeah. millions of dollars. So when you save a little money off that, sure. you get a nice cut, and it works well. Now, he always claims, I don't take a percentage, I take a fee. But uh, the bottom line is he makes money. Uh, by doing property tax appeals, perfectly legal. So the stories. Do his appeals ever get rejected? I doubt it. Not if you want to stay employed, uh-huh. uh, because he has a very long arm. If you're, you know, I don't know that for a fact, but my uh-huh. speculation is he's probably treated pretty well. But they're all treated pretty well because it's a game. Yeah. You know, they raise your assessment, they raise your taxes. This is part of the game, and then those in the know go do the appeals. And then they just recycle the money. Right. And, of course, the reason I, we have the highest property taxes in the country is because, uh, among many reasons, uh, pensions, the other one, uh, is this system. And so now here's how it works. To come back to your question about how does this work for somebody like Speaker Madigan, when you go to see the speaker, and let's say you're the head of a Fortune 500 company headquartered here in Chicago, and you have a fair amount of property assets in Cook County, and you have a matter before the General Assembly, and you'd like to have a meeting with the speaker, and you sit down and you're there to see the speaker. And he says, oh, I, I, I noticed that you have uh, 72 properties in Cook County. And you, you might not be aware of it. And overcomes the Getz and Dan, the Madigan and Getz and Danner <laughs> card. Uh, we handle property tax appeals. You ever need any help with that, you let me know. Uh, and now, what is it you want to talk to me about? <laughs> That's how it works. Okay. All right. Um, it's a great example of the scandal being what's legal, not what's illegal, right? That's I mean, what, you know, people talk about corruption. This isn't corruption. This is, this is legal, legal uh, corruption. Well, it's unbelievable that's even legal in a state like this. Well, be. So what's funny it about it – It certainly is immoral. Yes, I, I think that's fair. What's interesting to me about it is, um, you know, and it, this is sort of ties in with the stuff in my book. If you go to Afghanistan and you tell the local warlord, hey, look, you can't just give this contract to your nephew or your brother or your sister's cousin or whatever. It has to be openly bid on, right? And it has to be fair and you have to go with the lowest bidder and all that kind of, they look at you like your head's on fire because it makes no sense. And they said, that's completely unnatural. Why would I hire somebody who I don't know and trust? That's exactly that's right. exactly what they right. say. And by the way, that was also said by Joe Berrios, our former, uh, uh, appeals, uh, the guy that used to run our property tax appeals, I can't remember his exact title now, but he was also in the most recent election. But he had all family members. And when asked that exact question, like a Afghan warlord, yeah. why would I hire somebody else? I want to hire my family and keep it in the family. I trust them. Well, but see, but that's the thing is that, that in, and this is something that people who study, de- you know, development economics get into all the time is that the warlord has a point. Yes. That, yes. that in fact, that way of doing politics is totally natural. Right. That is the way politics has been done since we've had a polis, since we had the first city-states. And what is unnatural is the way we do it or we're supposed to do it in America and in other liberal democratic societies where you actually have the rule of law. There's never been a society anywhere in the history of the world where people haven't given favoritism, shown favoritism towards uh, first family and then friends. That's That's natural. And – the system of the rule of law, the sort of Hayekian liberal dem- liberal order, is unnatural. And so, what I find fascinating about thing places, this is what I was trying to get at before about the Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones thing. What I find fascinating about places like Illinois is how what it it's corrupt in the sense that you you've institutionalized and allowed society to slip back into the pre-enlightenment form of politics. <laughs> Not entirely, but to a considerable degree, right? Mm-hmm. The only thing that, like, 
doesn't make sense about Madigan's answer about why I, you know, but when he was asked, you know, why would I help? Why, who would I be thinking about kind of thing is that at least the court of to Machiavelli and those guys, you're supposed to pretend that you care about somebody or some higher principle because that's right. important for your business model, right? Right, right? That's sort of why I always call the Clintons the tutors of the Ozarks, right? You know, <laughs> um, good. and, um, and so that's what I find fascinating about, about Illinois is that it's, and, and really Chicago is that it's never really lost. Partly, I think the mob influence, you know, and the, 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 the structure of the mafia goes back to ancient Rome. And it's this understanding of friendship in a mm-hmm. very classical sense is more important than law or abstract principles kind of things. And it's just, it's amazing that you guys, Keep this going well, well into the 21st century. Yeah, and what's what's interesting about it to go back to the mafia analogy is, uh, you know, Chicago and Illinois worked really well and competed really well for a very very long time with this structure. The reason it's not competing well now is because of globalization. Right. We have to compete with the rest of the world, and because the rest of the of the states that have a more flexible and frankly cleaner uh, political system have adapted to that, and so internally, uh, intra uh, U.S. Uh, yeah. among the fifty states, we're not as competitive as we once were, and same thing globally. So that's why we struggle. And meanwhile, they've had their power consolidated so much that the public sector unions here are just absolutely dominant, controlling the Democrat Party. But the analogy back when it, uh, I was talking to some friends, a friend many years ago from Michigan, where I grew up, and I went to school in Detroit. And, of course, this was in the middle of Detroit going bankrupt and in the process of getting there anyway and uh, all the problems of Detroit. And I'm talking to this buddy of mine about the difference between Chicago and Detroit because at that time Chicago was still functioning pretty well. Yeah. And, he, and I said, well, you know, it's kind of like the mob. He goes, yeah, I know. I got it. You guys got Michael. We got Fredo. <laughs> and that was, that was really true for a yeah. long time. But unfortunately, Michael's gone now. Yeah. And uh, the, there's not a Don that has figured out how to adapt to the current world. Um, so – Actually, just on that point real quickly, the thing that fascinates me is how the comparison I always used was Pittsburgh versus Detroit because Pittsburgh was to the steel industry what Detroit was the auto industry and Pittsburgh's doing pretty good. I mean, it's always mm-hmm. listed in the top 10 states, mm-hmm. the most livable state, most, most livable cities in the yeah, country yeah. and it's a really lovely place to visit and it, transportation-wise, it's kind of brigadoon. It's kind of hard to get to, but <laughs> um but it doesn't have anything like the problems of Detroit, which kind of shows that the deindustrialization can be – I'm not saying they didn't have hard times, but deindustrialization can be managed if you've got the civic institutions to do it um, and the incentives to do it. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Wisconsin, you know, you're kind of pretty close to Wisconsin. And Wisconsin always shocks me at how seriously people take their political institutions there compared – other, but you don't have this thing in Illinois where everyone sort of makes jokes, you know, about how your politicians rotate in and out of jail and all these kinds of things. There was always this sort of, I don't know, if it's the Dutch reform influence or what it is, but they've managed, you know, the a lot of the same industrial issues that Illinois has faced pretty well. Well, that's what I think is interesting. I've actually spoken about this over the years, is that one of the problems in Illinois is the citizenry itself is so cynical and apathetic mm-hmm. about the corruption. And until we get to the point where Democrat, Republican, independents, and uh, people who don't participate in the political system really get to a threshold of anger to hold the political elites accountable, 
uh, that we're not going to see a change. And the interesting part of that is I think we're getting really close to that. And we see that in a lot of the work we do in social media, uh, things we do out in the community. Uh, and it's bipartisan. People are, you know, Governor Pritzker, and this is really ironic for elites in Chicago in particular, Governor Pritzker is less popular than President Trump. Yeah. And that is really a stunning uh, commentary on how he's gotten out of the gate so far. And the reason is, is he's just choosing more of the same that created the problem in the first place. As is always the case, as you know, the population is so far ahead of the political class on what the problem is and right. what the solutions are. They won't be able to give it to you in a nice policy white paper, but their instincts are generally right. They know we're taxed too much and we spend more than we tax. Right. And it's a perpetual problem. They get that. And the political class is, has not caught up to it yet. But they, they will if uh, you start to see some repudiation of the political class in real terms. So it's funny. Ten years ago, at the height of the um, Tea Party phase, you know, which in retrospect these days feels a little bit in – my, in my more um, – Dower moments, you know, feels like the death rattle, death rattle of, of, of Buckleyite conservatism. But, um, I used to tell people, look, you know, there's this thing called Stein's Law coined by, uh, Herb Stein, used to be at AI, he was a economist, worked for Nixon. And Stein's Law says, anything that can't go on forever eventually must stop. And the way Illinois, California, and Rhode Island were going, and to a lesser extent, New York State, slightly lesser, um, it looked like one of them, their, that model was unsustainable, and one of you guys would be the great example that scares the crap out of the rest of the country. It looks like California, for the time being, has pulled itself out of that. I'm not sure about – you never know what's being hidden in New York State. Um, I don't Bodies, know. mostly. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that. Um, not that – Illinois can throw those stones, but um, uh, you look at you know your the state bonds are pretty much junk bonds now, right? I mean, yeah, I'm not as oh yeah, the state bonds are almost every bond at the state uh, in, in the city of Chicago level is uh, a junk bond status. What's actually really interesting is the last I don't know if it was the last one, but a recent bond offering by the city. They had to pay 9.75%, and the statutory limit, I think, is 10%. So they're up against the top amount that they're going to be able to pay in an interest rate. And I think that's that's interesting because it starts to bring the bond market to a head. And once the bond market stops issuing debt, that'll precipitate a crisis. And anything you could do to help precipitate that would be helpful because we need a day of reckoning sooner rather than Well, that's sort of what I'm getting at is that I'm I, – I hate – hoping for bad things. I just think, and conservatives have a real tendency to do that. Defeatism, actually, we now think of it as a psychological term, but it was actually part of this philosophical or political strategy that comes out of Lenin, where Lenin thought the best thing that could happen for the Bolshevik revolution was to lose the First World War. And the whole idea of the worse, the better. But there is a sense in which, you know, someone's got to be the cautionary tale here. And it looks like you guys are pulling out ahead in that. Well, you know, I always joke that in all the things you want to be ranked one, two, or three, we're always 48th, 49th, and 50th. And the things you want to be ranked 48, 49, or 50, we're always one, two, or three. So, but what you're telling, what I hear you saying is we got a shot at being number one at something. Yes. Yeah. Look, I mean, Edmund Burke says, um, <laughs> example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other. And, um, I think Ed Koch said it better when he was, mayor of New York, and he, he lost his bid for a third term. He was asked if he was going to run again, and he said, no, the people of New York fired me, and now they must be punished. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to me that if – it would be terrible for Illinois, but it, 
if it didn't have cascading effects in the larger markets, it might be good for the country if you guys go off a cliff. Well, we already helped the country out by giving it Barack Obama, so why couldn't we do this too, right? But let me actually uh, turn it around a little bit because I do think that that is uh, one of the great challenges we face is this entire discussion and sort of the, the narrative of this discussion, which is Illinois is hopeless. There's no chance. We're going to auger in and we're going to you know, uh-huh. burn and then we'll help the rest of the country not burn. Uh, that may happen. But the irony of all of this is is that the policy solutions to fix our challenges are actually really simple. Uh-huh. It's really easy to fix it from a policy point of view. The problem is not a policy solution. Uh, really easy. Just quit spending more money than you're bringing in. Right. And uh, and th- how you do that, of course, is fairly involved and requires some sacrifices, especially from government workers, uh, and requires some uh, dramatic uh, things that haven't been done before but can be done and have been done elsewhere. But the problem is political will. And until politicians fear their voters more than they fear the unions and their uh, their special interest supporters, we're going to continue down this road. But once the voters who have decided to stay and fight decide to actually focus and they start to really put pressure on the political system, uh, then I think we can see the solutions we want short of carnage. Uh, obviously, catastrophe is not good for anybody is what it does to the people who actually suffer would be a terrible thing. So it would be much better for the political class to um, to finally find their voice and their courage and do the right thing. The thing that I think is interesting, John, is we face you know two policy crises and a different kind of crisis altogether. The first two are uh, out-of-control spending that drives our deficits, driven by pensions, uh, a housing crisis where people are literally selling their houses for less than they paid 15 and 20 years ago and taking massive hits to their equity, which is for most people their biggest form of savings for the right. working class and middle class. Those are two very real things going on and unfolding, which is why we lose population now for five years in a row. But the third crisis is the most important one, and that's a loss of faith. And not faith in the religious sense, but rather faith in our political leaders. And we're seeing this unfold right now with the attempt to change our constitutionally protected flat tax to a progressive tax. Uh, two Democrats just came out as no votes, and we need two more Democrats to join the Republicans to block this. And I'm fairly optimistic we're going to get them, in part because their constituents in these Democrat districts are truly rising up, and we're doing our part to help them rise up, <laughs> uh, and letting their legislators know that this is not the right solution. The public knows that this is not – ironically, they're, they're selling it as a tax on the top 3%, right. and yet the 97% know it's a lie. Right. They've been lied to before, and eventually they're going to come after you. And I think that's actually encouraging in terms of getting to that political will I referred to that's going to be necessary. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems so obvious just from afar because this plays out everywhere. And it plays out in the federal government, too. I mean, the federal government's a hot mess. Um, <laughs> if you know somebody who's that you know makes a nice living but lives way beyond it and has five credit cards and they're all maxed out – and they say, well, I'm going to take out a six credit card. And I'm going to Great idea. Yeah. I mean, it's like all you're doing is kicking the can for uh, X amount of days until you have the same problem all over again. So in terms of solutions, what, what, what would actually be if you were governor and you learned some of the lessons from the Rauner experiment, which I assume you've done learned some, uh, what would be your top three things that you would – Go for it. Uh, reform pensions. Uh-huh. So you – and this would be a package of things you would have to do. One is amend the constitution to allow 
to guarantee, uh, to protect benefits already earned. So people who've already earned their benefits, and as if you left your job today, what would you get? Mm -hmm. That should be protected. But the rate of growth in those benefits going forward should be reformed, and particularly on the COLA. Because the COLA is 43% of the pension crisis. If you solve the COLA problem, uh, you solve a big chunk of the pension crisis that we face. Uh, Additional parts of the pension reform uh, are capping pensionable salaries. Uh, you have huge numbers of uh, 30-year, 20- and 30-year careerists who retire in their 50s uh, who are going to receive somewhere between $1.5 and $2.5 million in retirement and will have actually paid in somewhere between $120,000 and $140,000 over that entire career. Yeah. Meanwhile, the people that are funding that are working class and poor people and middle class people who are making thirty, forty, and fifty thousand dollars average uh, income is about fifty five thousand in the state household income, and they're paying for that and turning government workers into millionaires. That is immoral and wrong, and that has to be fixed. Uh, we should take all current workers and give them an option to opt into a four hundred one k style program that currently exists for university current government workers or current workers. Current government workers. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about the pension issue is sure. purely government workers. Thank you for the clarification because we don't want to conflate the two. Um, so this is all about the government workers, they should all go into an optional program that is run in the university system. That would take another big chunk of the unfunded liability down. And then we uh, should have a reasonable contract that uh, for the state government workers that are part of the ASME union uh, that really starts slowing down the rate of growth of the highest paid state workers in the country. The average one makes about $66,000 a year. When mm-hmm. you adjust for cost of living, it's number one in the country. Um, and same thing, same kind of reforms with uh, employment benefits. And uh, then in addition to that, we should uh, make sure Medicaid focuses on the poorest among us and isn't a middle-class entitlement that crowds out services for the poor. Uh, There's other things that can be done, such as school district efficiency that eliminates school districts but protects schools, puts more money in the classroom and more money in taxpayer pockets. These are all the policies. Package them up. There's about three there if you actually break it down. Uh, That's what needs to be done from a policy point of view. And I think there's actually an appetite for it across the aisle on the Democrat side if properly sold. But right now, Governor Pritzker is leading the charge with the traditional extreme progressive agenda. And unfortunately, these issues are – they have some traction but not enough yet. so I, I probably did this backwards because I probably should have – we should have clarified the extent of the problem more than allude to it but actually lay it out. Um, what percentage of the – I mean if you have these numbers handy or, or ballpark, um, what percentage of the budget goes towards servicing government workers and pensions? 27% of the general revenue fund budget goes to fund pensions. 27%. I believe in 2000, it was around 3 or 4%. Uh-huh. Have some idea. Uh, That's it, a real candidate for Stein's Law right there. <laughs> well, it, it gets worse. I think I think these numbers are all from 2000. I'm doing them off the top of sure. my head. So we'll, we'll fact check me later. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, pension costs have skyrocketed 644%. Uh, employment, health insurance, and other benefits, 244%. Uh, education funding is up 73%. And funding for other services, including services for the poor, is up 18%. So that tells you where the political class thinks their priorities are, and it's not the poor. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, going back to our analogies about pre-modern politics, as, as just as clarification, I've become much more sympathetic to private sector unions over the last 20 years. Like, growing up, I wasn't – I was fairly sort of standard conservative, hostile. I grew up in New York City and, and, and just sort of saw that there were a lot of private sector – Unions that were rackets, but on the whole, like I get the argument for private sector unions. There's a libertarian argument that if you're you have a right to your property, your Lockean right to your property, and the first property is your own body and your own labor, 
and to collectively join with others to negotiate makes sense. If I were living in 1905 in West Virginia, I'd want to be part of a union if I were a coal miner, right? I, at the same time, while I grow much more sympathetic to private sector unions, um, in part because private sector union members understand you need a private sector to have the union, right? And, it's, and you saw this in Wisconsin and not the last election, but the one before the last time Scott Walker got reelected where the um, the miners and like the Iron Range and all that, they broke heavily for Walker because they understood that Walker was actually in favor of helping the economy. Well, the government workers um, broke wild, obviously wildly against Walker. Um, at the same time, I've grown more sympathetic to private sector unions. I've grown implacably hostile to the to government sector unions. Not not necessarily the employees themselves. Many of them are fine people, but it strikes me that you know. First of all, where was the great? This is the way I always put it: is like where was the great Department of Motor Vehicle ceiling collapse of like 1973 that justified the need for them to you know organize to protect their worker conditions? I mean, these are not coal miners, right? Right. And um. You know, even FDR was against public sector unions. And it's you don't have to study public choice theory to understand that when you create a class of people who um, are not dependent upon the market, but are simply dependent upon politicians whose time horizon is just to the next election. Um, and so they can promise things that they won't be held accountable for delivering. You're going to get a huge problem. And... There is nothing – I can see the argument for firefighters and policemen, but I think they're problems too. Um, you know, New York State or New York City basically has two police forces, one that's patrolling the streets of New York and the other one that's relaxing in Florida. Um, and um, – Crime's very low there. <laughs> that's true, <laughs> um, especially, you know, uh, when you're marlin fishing. But um, – uh, Unless you're the marlin. But the <laughs> the the <laughs> – this, the public sector unions have become essentially their own class, so with this, their own class interests. So you have gotten into one of my favorite topics. I know. Well, you this is the uh, new home of Mark Janis, is it uh, not? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, Mark, yeah. Mark, as you know, was our plaintiff at the Liberty Justice Center, the uh, law firm that was spun out of uh, Illinois Policy Institute, where I am happy to serve as chairman. And, we, and our co-counsel was the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation uh, on Mark's case that went all the way to the Supreme Court and freed 5 million workers in 22 states from compulsory union right. uh, fees or membership. And let's drill down on this just a little bit, because I think it's a really important conceptual uh, idea for everybody to understand that may not be obvious as to what the difference is between private sector and public sector unions. First of all, you've alluded to this, but I want to put a, emphasize it even more. What we've created is a privileged class of people who work for government, who are held immune to the vagaries of life in a, in a free right. economy. It doesn't matter the stock market or the economy is booming or declining. You're held harmless. And who protects you? Everybody that's working in the private sector, including the poor and disadvantaged most of all, who are paying you to, to be a government employee, have that safe government employee paycheck, and then when you retire, have a retirement where you've put in $133,000 of your teacher here in Illinois, and you get back $2.5 million. Uh, you start out with a, a, a pension of $67,000, not taxed by the state of Illinois, by the way. And uh, we've created this privileged class. It's an actual form of class warfare. Mm -hmm. Government workers as the privileged affluent class 
against the private sector workers who are paying for that. It is it is a divisive scheme that separates and creates division between government workers and the citizens who fund their uh, incomes and lifestyle. And that's bad for all of us. It would be much better if we were aligned and together, and that's what we should go back to. The government has a monopoly. The workers are providing a monopoly service on behalf of the government. That's why the government exists. And now the workers are in a monopoly union providing that labor, right. and they have tremendous leverage as a result. If the teachers go on strike, the children are not taught. Now, compare that to the private sector. In the private sector, especially in right-to-work states, which I do believe you should, you should not have forced unionization even in the private sector, but I completely agree. This is a right to freely associate. If you want to form a union, form a union. Right. More power to you. I'm all for that because that's part of having a classical liberal concept. And the other part about the private sector, though, is that in the private sector, the business that the union is partnering with, even though there's adversarial nature to it, they're together competing with the rest of the world with right. their private sector competitors. And if you overplay your hand as the union and you negotiate a bad deal like the UAW did, you shed jobs and they all move to the middle south and the right. far south. And all of your, you know, people say the auto manufacturing business left Michigan. I mean, went away in the northern states. No, it didn't. It just moved. Right. And so private sector workers are subject to the vagaries of the economy. We're all in it together with them. And so that's the difference. And that's why a, a, a government union unions have created such a, a mind-numbing challenge for us from a public policy point of view yeah, and I mean, a political point of view. It goes back to that point I was making about how competition allows you to discover the actual price for something. Government unions don't actually have competition. Exactly. And, um, you know, and when I have this argument with my liberal friends, they're like, yeah, but, you know, look, government workers, um, they don't necessarily – they can make – some of them can make more in the private sector. I'm sure that's true for some of them. I'm sure it's not true for others. But people pay a premium – for the kind of job security you get for working for a government union. And exactly. I looked at these numbers a while ago. I can't, I don't have it off the top of my head, but there were several major U.S. government, federal government agencies that had a retention rate of 97, 98, 99%. And several agencies lost more employees to death <laughs> than to quit, quitting. And, and sometimes you know? they didn't discover that death for years. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying the paycheck stopped. I'm just saying, you know, that, that... There was just a story of a government worker in another country, I can't remember which one it is, who didn't show up for work for six years and nobody noticed. Right. Until they were going to give him an award for his 20-year anniversary. <laughs> That's when they noticed. So, um, uh, let's talk about... So, I'm actually... This 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 is among the nerdier sentences you'll ever hear me say. I'm actually a pretty big fan of state based think tanks. Um, wow! And um, you think that's nerdy? <laughs> wow. Trust me, I that's policy porn for us. Yeah, well, I <laughs> having grown up in the think tank world, um, I, I um, you know, I'm the I'm I'm the I'm the coolest nerd in my corner of my think tank. So, um, nerd. But um, the it seems to me that that first of all, we've seen kind of seen a major, you know, explosion in state-based think tanks, yep. which I think is a good thing. Absolutely. And um, um, because I had Tyler Cowen on my podcast a little on uh, three or four episodes ago, and he was actually arguing that the biggest that he's coming to believe that that the 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 biggest enemies to free enterprise and innovation are actually at the state and local level now, rather than the, at the federal level. Um, I'm not going to argue with Tyler Cowen. I still see a lot of problems at the federal level, but I believe him when he says there are a lot of problems at the local level. Um, why don't you just tell me a little bit about how a sort of citadel of sort of free market economics is received in um, 
the the, the wilds of of um, Kabul, as it were. Yeah, it's interesting. When I got started doing this in 2007. The think tank had been around for five years, uh, had an average budget of about $80,000, and really was struggling. Uh, good founder who really was trying to do the right thing, but it was a tough environment. And when I decided to uh, get involved, uh, I was told by everybody that I knew, like, are you insane? This is Illinois. There's no market in the donor community to fund a free market think tank, and then there's no market for the ideas of a free market think tank. And the old joke here was the Reagan revolution flew over Illinois, even <laughs> though he was born here and ignored it. Uh, I just never believed that. I've always believed that the greatest force for good ever created in the human sphere is free enterprise and the founding principles, the best way to help the human condition improve, and especially for the poor and disadvantaged. And one of the things you've written about uh, is that this is not about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in terms of you and I going out and having cocktails. This is about uh, flourishing of the human spirit. Right. It's not about material. And my my argument back in 2007 was we just aren't making the argument well enough to build it. And uh, we're one of the largest state think tanks in the country now. If you count our C3 and C4, it's about a $12 million operation. If you roll in the Liberty Justice Center with that, about a 14 or $15 million operation. So and that's basically uh, a sort of like Institute for Justice style law. Liberty Justice Center, very much modeled on Institute yeah. for Justice. Would, great admirer of all of them. Yeah. And Chip. They've and, done uh, great they've done things. Incredible things. And, uh, and Chip and John Kramer, who's there, a good friend and been very generous. And when I was learning how this all, this world worked, because I was a business guy when I got into it. And, uh, but what I found is, you know, if you put the flag up the pole and mm-hmm. start rallying people to the cause, they will if yeah. you have a good product. And freedom uh, and the idea of free enterprise is the greatest th- product ever created in the human sphere. And it's very fun to sell it in a place like this. Yeah. As Andrew and- Breitbart used to say, if you can't sell freedom, you suck. Yes, yes. I've sold a lot of really unpleasant things, so this is a lot more fun than selling anything else. And and I think one of the things that we've tried to do here that's a little different is we've really built a marketing agency that is focused on selling freedom. I came out of the marketing space. We've got an amazing team of marketers here that take the policy ideas the policy team puts together and turn them into human stories. And we try to tell the ideas about public policy in this state through the lens of a person's life at the point the policy intersects that person's life. So we don't do We do all the data and the research. Research, of course, but the tip of the spear is how that policy affects a mom or a dad or a kid going to school or driving to work or filling up their gas tank or trying to find a job or sitting down to write the check to pay their property taxes and wondering how they're going to afford it. And we just did a story on a woman who paid, I think it was $195,000 for a house over 10 years ago. It's now worth about $180,000 and she's paying $8,000 in property taxes. Yeah. She is absolutely being screwed by this political system and this political class. And that is why people have lost faith in our political leadership. And we're here to tell those stories and try to rally people to the cause of reform. So it's interesting. You know, I carved out this space a while back because I'm one of the handful of conservatives who can tell a joke um, of being sort of the entertaining but enlightening after dinner speaker for various conservative My, my favorite joke I heard you say before you go on with that one is uh, the first time I ever heard you speak, you walked in and you were kind of, you know, looking a little uh, frazzled and you grabbed the water and you took a huge sip of it. And this is probably one of your standard lines. You know where yeah. I'm going, don't you? Go ahead. Let's get, let's hear it. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm drinking so much water. I smoked an enormous amount of pot before I got here and I right. get really bad dry mouth. Yeah. And, yeah. And, the, and the part that's funny about that is when you said that you caught, you could have got arrested and gone to jail. Now <laughs> you can stop on the street corner and buy it legally in places all over the country. Well, it's funny. I try not to use that because I've become, it's become associated with me so much, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's when you've gone to the well too often for a line. But the problem is, is that it's, it's, it's a great way to, first of all, it's a great way to test if you have the audience still with you. I mean, one of the reasons why I started telling jokes and speeches was, um, 
I used to be very nervous that I was losing the audience. Mm-hmm. And the only way I could tell if they were still listening is I would tell a joke. And if they laughed, that meant they were actually listening to me. And then it turned out that I had a comparative advantage because other people couldn't tell jokes. And right. so um, I started doing this sort of semi-stand-up kind of thing. Um, and it kind of worked out. But um, how I got onto this. Oh, so when I first started doing uh, events and visiting state-based think tanks and whatnot on book tours and all the rest – the model was much more Goldwater Institute-y. It was mm-hmm. sort of intense policy focus on a handful of issues in the state and all this stuff. And then I noticed very qu- quickly over the last, say, 10 years, um, particularly as the local newspapers all start dying, a lot of these state-based think tanks see themselves as sort of filling that void and doing – Sort of, I don't want to call it muckraking because it's good stuff, but it's, but so was some of the muckraking stuff. Um, mm-hmm. but it's this, if you can't count on the big newspapers or the local news stations to cover this stuff, um, and there's not enough competitive pressure on the news side, that a lot of these places are sort of de facto media outlets. Right. And, um, which I think is a really important role to play. I mean, I'm sort of looking at the media space in all new ways because I'm starting this other thing. And, um, you know, the Rio Grande Foundation was doing all this transparency stuff where – because they couldn't count on the local newspapers to actually look at where the tax dollars were being spent. So they just sort of set up websites. Um, lots of places like that do that now. Um, I think Mackinac Center does a lot of that kind of stuff. And then you, from the sounds of it, you're doing a lot of that kind of thing. And I was just sort of wondering, what does the local journalist – establishment think of you sort of stepping on their turf on that front? Uh, this is uh, such a great topic. So when I got started in this in 2007, as I mentioned earlier, I came out of the marketing space and I started out in college as a journalism major. And I really wanted to build a megaphone. It was To me, I always thought we, our ideas are fantastic. We're just lousy at selling them. I mean, we've got the greatest product ever created and we sell it like it's cancer. They're actually selling cancer and they've got customers more than we do. It's just amazing to me. Yeah, but tan- cancer can taste great. Yes, it does. <laughs> in the beginning, it's really good. And then it really gets pretty bad at the end. Uh, but uh, so we've built our organization from the beginning with a marketing focus. The first few people we hired were marketers. Uh, the largest department here is the marketing team. Uh, and you know we have a, a whole we have a full time marketing agency here, mm-hmm. and and I think that this is permeated. We, we were the first ones to ever have a director of digital, and we've been very focused on building the megaphone in a concept we call owned audience. What we want to be able to do is get people to opt in with their email submission, their first and last name, and a zip code, so that we can know who that person is and direct market to them. Our philosophy is we want to build a data collection funnel, and a 21st century marketing machine so we can bypass the legacy media that you're referring to. And to give you an illustration of the impact, uh, if you measure us compared to, say, the Chicago, Chicago Tribune's political coverage, we're as big or bigger than they are. Mm-hmm. We're bigger than most of the other media outlets. If we decide to run, uh, say, we have a, a policy person on a news show at the 10 o'clock news here, which is when the main evening news is, uh, the, the number one station will have 500,000 homes tuned in. Mm-hmm. We can get 600,000 or more people to watch that same hit digitally. Mm-hmm. So we've built this megaphone, and we can create massive audience. And I think what the to come back to your question, uh, they don't like it mm-hmm. because they they recognize that they need us because we tell a story that they need in their stories. But at the same time, they do see us as a threat. And a good example of this is there's um, some uh, media awards here called the Lissiger Awards, uh, run by the Headline Club of Chicago, and we started entering those awards and we started winning mm-hmm. a lot. 
they finally came up with a reason to ban us from participating because we were winning too much. <laughs> so that's a good illustration of how they like the competition. They prefer they prefer the oligarchy. Well, so so all right. So this raises something, and I'll, I'll bore some longtime listeners of this because this is sort of an obsession of mine of late. Um, one of the things I'm sort of fascinated by is how we live in one of the most partisan times in American history. I mean, 1850s were more partisan. You know, 1960s were more partisan. But back then, the parties themselves were much stronger. Right. Um, never before have our parties been weaker. And so one of the – and part of that has to do with the fact – and this is a point that Elaine Kamark has made – that um, we're the only advanced, industrialized democratic society in the world whose main parties have abdicated um, their sole responsibility and monopoly over picking their own nominees. And – starting with the primary stuff in 1972, then campaign finance reform and all these other things have conspired to the point where um, we basically have Potemkin parties at the national level. Right. And uh, over that time, lots of institutions, some great institutions, you know, I mean, I'm with the American Enterprise Institute. I love the American Enterprise Institute. With National Review, um, love National Review. Uh, they have taken over a lot of the historical functions of parties in terms of vetting candidates, background research, opposition research, issue formation. And again, I'm not saying that these are bad things in and of themselves. There are also other institutions like the National Rifle Association and Planned Parenthood, which also take over party functions in terms of voter mobilization and, and encouraging people to vote along single issues, which is a little more problematic. I mean, I'm, I'm pro-Second Amendment and all that, but one of the roles of parties, and this is a point that Edmund Burke makes, one of the roles of parties is to um, force compromise among different members of coalitions around prioritizing issues and, and, and understanding that you can't get 100% of your issue, but you'll get 50% of your issue if you agree to help the other people with 50% of their issue. And so with the breakdown of the, the party system before our eyes um, – and I'm not even getting into the really bad actors in this this space. Um, there's the, what is happening is that there are a lot of institutions now that get caught in this tension between doing what's best for the quote unquote party for people who call them have R's or D's after their name and doing what's best for the issue. And it seems to me that, for example, some of the tension between you and the Rauner administration is a perfect example of. Are we for our issues or are we for helping the party? Um, do you get much grief from the Republican Party for being too purist? I mean, this is the kind of problem that like Americans for Prosperity gets all the time. Why are you guys so focused on your issues? Shouldn't you be helping the party more because you're not going to get anything unless you win? And I understand that argument and that's a prudential argument. Mm -hmm. But if you don't keep in mind, you know, this is something that National Review has always be impressed upon its writers, which is, um, you know, uh, 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 Bill Rusher, the former publisher, always used to tell young writers, politicians will always disappoint you. And it's not because politicians are bad. It's that their incentive structure is different than the incentive structure for someone who's decided to forego getting rich in life to write earnest articles for National Review about, you know, the wisdom of the ancients or whatever, or the glories of Western civilization. And those tensions, I, one of the problems I think that we have with the conservative movement these days is that the, that the conservative movement, where the conservative movement and the Republican Party overlap has gotten way too far. Mm 
and that the definition of being a good conservative now is too often whether or not you're a, a loyal Republican, regardless of what the Republican Party wants to do. Do you see these issues on the state level? Am I completely oh, yeah. wrong? No, I mean- no, no, no. That, you've, you've described it very well, and I'll give you some specific examples. So, uh, you know, when I first uh, was uh, uh, trying to work with Governor Rauner on a policy agenda, to be clear, what I said to him was loyalty comes from a common cause, and that common cause is the policy agenda we agree on. Right. Not you as an individual or the party you represent. The reason we're working together is because we agree on a policy agenda. And when the day comes we don't agree on a policy agenda, either you will part company with me and us or we will part company with you. That was a, And I had that conversation with them throughout the entire relationship. The thing that's interesting about it is what they choose to hear. Yeah, yeah. What, they, what a politician chooses to hear is, so you say you love me? Yeah. <laughs> that's what they're hearing. Of course, th- that's not the point. Uh, we love the common cause in the mission. So, so yes, uh, the, the, I mean, you, you said a lot there. Let me go through a couple aspects of this. What I think is so interesting, going back to parties, is that most people today don't realize that parties at one time were private entities. Right. And they were like clubs. And we, you and I form a club, and we're going to be the Freedom Club. And then we pick Joe over there to be our nominee. And then we go to the public and say, we've picked this guy. Here's our agenda. Vote for Joe. And that's what all the parties did as private entities. And then they would submit to participate in the elections, and then people would vote. What happened in the progressive era, and you might know the details uh, fairly well, but the short version of this is essentially uh, candidates took over the election process and took it away from parties over a period of time. And so candidates now dominate the process, and the parties are merely a tool. And so today parties are merely a tool to advance a candidate or for people like us in the think tank community to advance a policy agenda. Again, we're nonpartisan and we have to be by law. We don't back either party. But we want parties and candidates to adopt our policy agenda, and that's what we try to get them to do. And a a perfect illustration of the complexity of this now and how uh, parties have lost their way uh, is we're fighting this progressive tax attempt where uh, Governor uh, Pritzker wants to change our constitutionally protected flat tax to progressive tax. And we just helped convince two Democrats to join the Republicans and say no. We got all kinds of grief from a bunch of Republicans yeah. for praising the Democrats for choosing the right policy. Yeah. I mean, this is breathtaking. Yeah. And then meanwhile, we're working with Democrats on some school efficiency work, criminal justice reform, some of the most illiberal in the classical liberal sure. sense uh, uh, policies. We're working with Democrats and, and Republicans, but there are some Republicans who think we've sold out. Yeah. So we are very much a pragmatic organization. Uh, my goal is to advance towards the end game. We're in the end game now. Uh, and I'll take whatever piece of territory I can get every single day, so long as we're not backpedaling somewhere else in a way that is contrary to our mission. And I think that the think tank community in D.C. Uh, and the party apparatus, it's, we're really in a very odd time because the party structure wants the think tanks to be lapdogs. Mm-hmm. Cheer us on and shut up when we have to go do that thing we have to do. That's not what and give me some policy papers we can sell. Right. Yeah. And that's not the role of the think tank. The role of the I think agree. tank, which is a private entity, uh, is to advance a policy agenda. The role of politicians is to pick and choose what they like and run on that. And then if the think tank does advocacy work, not all of them do, some do as we do, uh, you know, you get to be held accountable for that. And you know what politicians don't like most of all is accountability. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's, that's well put. And I think one of the things, one of the problems that you get at the national level is the institutions that depend on a mass base of donors are the first ones to sort of bend to whatever the the argument that it, what is good for the party is what matters. 
Um, and it's a tension that um, is very hard to figure out. I mean, there's a reason, you know, there, there's a, with the right, and we don't have to get into the details of Donald Trump, but there was, as someone who witnessed it at the time up close, <laughs> you know, there's that French intellectual who said, you know, the people have cho- the people have chosen and I must go with them for I am their leader. There was a lot of that going on. And um, I think some places, I don't want to besmirch friends of mine at other institutions and whatnot, but, you know, AI, in part because of the way its donor system is structured, was able to stay immune from all of that. We don't have a single party line at AI. And if you want to say whatever you want to say about something as whatever. So we have liberals that work there. We have conservatives who work there. We have a bunch of people, some very good friends of mine who went into the Trump administration. We have other people who are very much antagonistic towards the Trump administration, and it kind of works. At other institutions where you can't easily replace one or two donors who get mad at you because you're talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of donors who are sending in $25 a month or $5 a month on their credit card, you become much more attenuated to, to sort of doing what your donors want because that's the model. And I, and we saw a lot of that in talk radio. We see a lot of that at various institutions. I think it's one of the reasons why the NRA has gone so heavily into the culture war stuff. And I think it's a real, real problem. And so what, and and it's the same thing with, it's, it's analogous to the problem with the parties. The parties, as you said before, used to be private entities. It would be better if they were less democratic. Right. The key to democracy is some undemocratic institutions. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But people think that means un, that, that we're abandoning democracy. Not at all. No, no, no. Uh, no I know. Yeah. But I just want to. I mean, the Marines that. are the least democratic institution we've got. They're very right. important to protect democracy. Exactly. But the, the point is democracy is voting for a choice. Right. The party should control their choice. Right. Rather than have it you know, be wide open. I think going back to the idea where the party puts forward a candidate and then the people choose among the parties which candidate they like. That's how we raise money. Our, our, our fundraising philosophy is very uh, straightforward. And, we, and this is how we avoid the problem you just described. Because uh, I'm asked all the time, how, how are you able to raise all this money to do this? It's very clear. We have a very clear vision, mission, and strategy to, uh, strategy to accomplish it. And we sell that. Yeah. And we ask people to join and partner with us in that. And if people buy into that vision and mission, they fund us. If they don't buy into it, they choose to fund somebody else. Right. And that's, of course, how it should be. What we do not do, nor will we ever do, is have a donor come to us and say, I'd really like you guys to get into this issue that we don't get into, and I'll give you a million dollars to do it. Yeah. We would never do that because that's the moment you've prostituted yourself and you're gone forever. You should close your doors. Yeah. No. Then And again, we don't need to spread gossip while the microphone's on, but- there are people who I can't wait to do it when the microphones <laughs> are off, John. But that that happens a lot where people come and say, you know, I would really love a study that shows X. And, you know, the only honorable answer to that is, well, we'll do a study that looks at X, and if we find that what you think it should find actually is true, then we're happy to publish that study. But if we find out that it isn't happening the way you think it is, we're going to be happy to publish that study right. too. Yeah, because we actually, I always, one of my favorite jokes is it has to have the benefit of being true. Right. Otherwise, why are you here? Right. And, you know, you know, if somebody comes to us and says, hey, I, this is a subject matter I'm interested in, and that's on our agenda, and they want to help support that work, that's perfectly fine. Right. But to create a new program out of whole cloth that was never in your on your radar or is part of your strategy and you're just suddenly, you know, let's say we're going to we're going to get into the mining field. Let's go do some work on mining regulations. Right. Well, that's not we're never going to do that. Right. Right. Other people might do that, but that's not yeah. our thing. So, this has gotten we've descended into the kind of really 
micro-targeted shop talk that, you know. I know. How, how many people do you think are left right now? Literally dozens and of are, people are listening are very attentively. sober at this point. <laughs> no, actually, it's, it's funny. Every time I'm terrified that I've gone too wonky on this thing, uh, people write in and say, no, 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 more wonkiness. Because I think one of the reasons why podcasts are doing so well now is that the – the nutrition value of the sort of cable news shout shows is so low oh that actually I'll hearing people watching. complete a thought, you know, even if you disagree, um, is just so welcome, you know, that I, I think that's one of the reasons why podcasts are sort of booming and almost all the other traditional stuff is kind of is, is withering. Have you, have you heard from your audience whether they've established a drinking game? Like, do you have a phrase you say a lot that every time you say it, they have to? Oh, yeah. No, there are bingo cards out there. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked about, uh, Bigfoot erotica and we won't because I know that Bigfoot would, erotica. Yeah. It came up on one episode. Joe and, here. He's really into that. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, no, it's, uh, Bigfoot erotica. I was having a conversation with my friend Andy Ferguson and we were, mm-hmm. I don't even remember how it really came up, but it was something along the lines of how this is a really big country and there are lots of people who are interested in weird things. Yes. And I said, for example, there are a lot of people who are actually into Bigfoot erotica. Just type it into Amazon. And he's like, really? And then all of a sudden, all these jokes came in. Why does Jonah know about Bigfoot erotica and all of I don't really have an answer to that. <laughs> and then there was a guy who ran for Congress in Virginia and it turned out he was into oh, my Bigfoot erotica and everyone's like, you gotta have him on your show. And it's like, no. No, I don't. No, I you know? actually don't. I don't have to do that. Too much Purell involved. <laughs> and, um, uh, but, uh, uh, no open told shoes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so there's, there's, uh, yeah, there are a lot of, there are a lot of bingo things. Uh, the way I pronounce globalist, because I always put a stink on it, because there's all this paranoia about the globalists. The globalists are out uh. to get us and that kind of thing. Um, and I'm sure the Twitter feed for this will come up with another three dozen things. Um, so um, as we sort of wrap up here, just briefly about Chicago itself, um, when was the last time you had a actual conservative, not just a Republican, but when was the last time you had a Republican mayor? Did you Have you had a Republican mayor? Uh, I don't think there's been Republican Like 70 years, something like longer that? Longer than that. I think it's been probably in the 40s or 30s. I don't uh, know, actually. And do you think- I'm sure they were just as corrupt as all the ones that preceded and followed. So is it like- um, what? Is, is, is that created a faction of actually sort of conservative democratic political class here, or is that just been Yeah, I actually out? think that uh, the Lori Lightfoot win is really interesting. Uh-huh. I mean, she is a classical liberal. I mean, not a classical liberal. She's a progressive, uh-huh. a traditional progressive in most ways. Uh, but And the jury's out. But she's been fairly impressive in a couple of areas. In particular, um, some of her advisors are people I know who are true reformers, honest reformers that I respect. There was some of that in Rom, wasn't there? Uh, I, I think with Rom, it was mostly uh, window dressing. Uh-huh. I think with at least it turned out to be window dressing. I don't know. Maybe he had good intentions in the beginning, but when he when he got rolled on the 2012 teacher strike, he was never the same after that. And the yeah. unions really had his number. And I just don't think Rom ever as tough as Rom's reputation was. I don't think he ever had his heart in actually taking on the great gigantic challenge in Chicago politics, which is the public sector unions, particularly Chicago Teachers Union. Yeah. That is the fundamental problem. They're bankrupting this the city, literally. And uh, uh, But Lori Lightfoot is a reformer. She was the anti-machine candidate. The fact that she crushed Tony Preckwinkle in the runoff by a huge margin 
was an example, I think, that the uh, city voters, and it was a small turnout, but nevertheless, those who were motivated to turn out overwhelmingly voted for what was perceived as the anti-machine reform candidate, I think is encouraging. Yeah. Uh, and Rauner actually competed pretty well in the 2014 election in a number of wards in the city. For the first time, a Republican did pretty well and actually won one ward and came very close in a few others. So I think there's movement afoot in the city, and I think a, a pro-growth uh a Democrat, but a pro-growth, fiscal responsible Democrat uh, really could get some traction down the road, I think. So I want to try out a, which I am not necessarily proposing, sort of a devil's advocate thing, but it's something I've been thought, of, thought about a bunch a while ago. There's some actually really good studies that show that for all the talk about how liberals care so much about voter turnout, and want everyone to vote, and it's a rite of passage, let's lower the voting age, and all of this stuff, which I think is conceptually very flawed, and we can talk about that if you want. But it turns out that the among the players that are least interested in expanding the electorate are teachers' unions. Because if voter turnout is low, then their share of the vote is decisive. If you expand the pie of the electorate dramatically then the people who recognize the and it's sort of a Mansur Olson point of concentrated benefits versus diffuse costs. The concentrated benefits go to the teachers' unions. So if teachers' unions, let's say for the sake of argument, there are a hundred members out of an electorate of a thousand, and you only have a turnout of two hundred, then they're fifty percent of the vote. If you could get the entire electorate of of a thousand to turn out, they're only ten percent of the vote. And um there's an argument to be made that if conservatives could simply expand the electorate to get to the common sense voters that you're talking about to a point, because that's what you're talking about, right? Once the voters become activated and recognize that they can change things, and if they just turn out and vote for the right people, you can fix a lot of these problems. So perhaps one of the things that conservatives who are doing state-based or local-based stuff, I don't like it at the federal level, but of of sort of goosing um uh, voter turnout, finding ways to make it easier or, or, or more attractive to get larger numbers of people to vote, to expand the pool, to shrink the role of these people who have a stranglehold on, on local resources. You could actually get the dynamic that you're talking about. Yeah, this is a, a very, very smart observation, and uh, I'm doing my very best not to pander. But this is actually <laughs> one of the one of the things we've thought about a lot because uh, all the municipal elections here. The Chicago mayoral election was in early April when it's miserable. Yeah, that's, that's, that's in fairness, it's, it's miserable at ten months a year here. <laughs> that, is, that is that is an insult. It's wrong, and uh, you're never coming back if you say things uh, like that. It's this only nine and a half months. This is one of the most beautiful places from roughly May through. Uh, the end of October. It's amazing. Uh-huh. And then we have this little bridge. We get through the holidays, and that helps us survive those two months. Uh-huh. And then we all leave in January. Uh, I see. And then we come back in February, and then we suffer uh-huh. through March. Yeah, and yeah. then in April, we get you know periodic good weather to give us hope to get to May. So that was wrong uh-huh. and just really mean-spirited. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, coming back to the, to the main point, which is local elections. The, the it's not a design flaw, this thing you're talking about. It's a feature. Sure. Exactly the reason you're discussing. Because they want to – so that's why all the local elections are always not during a general election because they want the low turnout so that those who have a vested interest economically in the outcome – Vote their interests. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's an excellent reform idea. We're going to get right on that. Do you have a donation you can make to help us? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean – so it's funny. My, <laughs> my, my brother uh, ran for New York City Council. Um, years ago, uh, he passed away about eight years ago. But I'm so um, sorry, thank you. That's um, very tough. And um, 
And it was fascinating. My brother was a classic New York politics junkie. He'd been a cab driver. He'd done all sorts of things. And it was interesting. He sort of went to school about – because, you know, the local elections are all publicly financed. But there's this enormous barrier to entry in the terms of the paperwork you have to do to qualify for public financing. You need a fixer to tell you how to do it. And if you're an incumbent, you actually have a staff – that does it for you. So basically it's an incumbent protection racket where you get to sort of just – sort of like a public sector union. You have – the system perpetuates you. And particularly if you're wired in with a democratic machine, you just have people who know how to do the paperwork. But if you're outside, you're you're blocked out. And the more you look at um, – and this is why I always go back to sort of guild explanations for things. It's all about creating systems that are – de facto barriers to entry for competition. Absolutely. And I think that where places in any place where Republicans are doing are overwhelmingly dominant for a long period of time, that place would be better off if Democrats got stronger. Any place where Democrats have been in power for a very long time, that place would be better off if Republicans got stronger. It is not a partisan thing for me because I just think simply the competition for the median voter competition for median voter, if you can move the median voter to the center that means better policies will win. And the problem is, is that's very difficult to do in these entrenched guilds all over the place. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think we've, we've geeked out here enough. Um, is there anything else about Illinois that you think, or, or about Chicago that you think the rest of the country desperately needs to know? I think what happens in Chicago over the next 18 to 24 months is something for the rest of the country to watch to see whether they try to solve the problem by instituting an income tax in the city, which would be a complete catastrophe, whether they try to massively raise property taxes almost to the point of taking your house away, uh, or whether they actually start addressing, and Lori Lightfoot and some of the other new city council members actually start addressing and trying to find an accommodation and a compromise where both happen where you fix the pension problem, thus taking the pressure off the spending side and do some new revenue because you're going to have to pro- – not, I'm not adv- – they could solve the problem without new revenue. But in terms of a political accommodation, right. you have to have both sides of that equation. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out or if they continue to kick the can down the road. Um, but it's going to come to a head because uh, Chicago has a massive balloon payment on their pensions they have to make sometime in late 2020, and that is going to precipitate a crisis. All right. So – you wouldn't necessarily recommend yet buying Chicago bonds. I would recommend selling every Chicago bond you have right now and creating a run on it. That's what I'd like to see happen. All right. The worse, the better. Thank you very much, John Tillman. Thank you for having me here. Thanks for having me on, John. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around I love it, bet your bottom dollar you lose the blues In Chicago, Chicago, the town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down On State Street, that great street, I just want to say They do things they don't do on Broadway They have the time, the time of their life I saw a man, he danced with his wife In Chicago, Chicago, my hometown Chicago, Chicago